Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. In today's extra episode, I'm talking to Roberto Foa about his recent report on youth engagement with democracy, or rather disengagement. Why are young people losing faith in democratic politics? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. So, Roberto, when we spoke before, we were looking at this huge data set that you have gathered and you have mined covering the world and going back more than a generation. And we were looking at the the big picture analysis about trends in different places and over different timeframes in people's relative satisfaction with democracy. But you've now really mined it for the generation gap, something I've talked about a lot on this podcast. And you have discovered essentially that there is a striking trend younger people are growing much more dissatisfied with democracy, though there are caveats which we'll come to. And as you say, it is both relative and absolute. So it's both that young people are more dissatisfied than old people, older people, and they're more dissatisfied than older people were when they were young. So just take us through that that double finding. I mean, we, we've known for a very long time that you know, when we, we run opinion, public opinion surveys, that we find that younger generations and younger individuals tend to express higher levels of dissatisfaction with the performance of democracy and frustrations in a wide variety of areas. But a sort of conventional view, perhaps until now, has been that this is simply a life cycle effect, that you know, people start out their lives critical and dissatisfied, but eventually you know, people get a career, get uh, a home, uh, start a family, and that people at that point uh, start to mellow out and become more satisfied, uh, both in their own lives, but also with the performance of society's institutions. And I guess what we found is that really doesn't seem to be the case, that when you look at millennials and indeed members of Generation X, individuals have actually become more dissatisfied with democracy over the course of their lives. If it were a life cycle effect, we'd expect to be seeing the opposite. We'd be expecting to see millennials moving into their 30s, becoming more satisfied and catching up with baby boomers. And the other point I would make as well is I think that you can't really dismiss this either as simply being a period effect. So I think that there was probably a point after the global financial crisis when you might have been able to argue that, well, maybe this is something temporary, uh, maybe this is something short-term in response to economic conditions. But here we are over a decade later, and still this really huge intergenerational gap persists. And just to be clear, the the baby boomers, because your survey goes back far enough, Mm -hmm. I mean, your global sort of gathering of surveys goes back far enough to make this comparison. So the baby boomers, when they were, as it were, millennials, if you know what I mean, when they were younger, they had much higher levels of satisfaction, which they've retained. And the millennial generation starts off from a lower base and it declines. So is it possible that 
one thing we could draw from this is that early attitudes tend to stick or even to harden. So rather than you know that view that people start left and become right or start angry and become mellow, that actually the attitudes that people have in their 20s perhaps persist. Could we draw that from this? Yeah, I, that's a reasonable assumption. I mean, I think one of the foundational hypotheses in psychology and social psychology and political psychology is the idea of socialization effect, that attitudes are formed through experiences early in life. But once those attitudes are formed, they tend to prove relatively persistent, they tend to stick uh, with the generation. And that's why it's, it's actually useful to do analysis of survey data of social data in terms of generational effects. So I think that we will see that effect persist, we have seen this effect, this gap persist, and that's entirely consistent with any kind of theoretical expectation about human behavior. So there's another possible explanation here. And this is something that, for instance, I think David Willits, who's written a lot about generational divides in British politics, has emphasized, which is just a brute demographic fact. The reason the baby boomers are called the baby boomers is there was a boom of them. There were lots of them. And so if you're in that generation, the generation which is now the mature generation, but consistently throughout the life cycle of that generation, they have tended to win elections in the sense that they had the numbers. And current millennial generations, and this is something I've talked about a fair bit on this podcast, have a structural disadvantage. There aren't enough of them. And so when everyone turns out to vote, there's also a question about whether they do actually turn out to vote. And this could be a sort of vicious circle. You lose confidence in democracy, you don't vote, it doesn't work for you, you have less confidence. But younger generations can be outvoted by the baby boomers. And therefore, if you're in the the bigger cohort, you might be more comfortable with democracy because it tends to work for you. Do you think that's possibly something of what's going on here? It's demographic? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you can see that in country after country, how public policy has favoured the economic interests of baby boomers, whether that's over pensions, whether that's the formation of a a dual labour market, like we've seen in Southern Europe or parts of Latin America, where you have formally protected jobs for one generation, uh, but quite limited security or perhaps no jobs at all for younger generations, or whether that's in areas like housing policy in the UK or in the US, but especially in the UK, where essentially we've artificially constrained the supply of housing so as to favour homeowners and landlords over tenants. So I think that that is true in all areas of public policy. The only caveat I would say is that that cannot persist forever, that eventually that if millennials in the next decade start going into their 40s, and still haven't managed to pay off debts, get on the housing ladder, save for retirement, then sooner or later, you will have a shift and a big shift in the electoral balance and where the interests of the median voter lie. Although one of the implications of your survey and and both the previous one and this one is that waiting for, as it were, decades for these things to even themselves out, some of the trends are quite stark. And you do raise this much bigger, more fundamental question, which is, you know, what's the tipping point here, people's disillusionment with democracy, when does it become a threat to the functioning of democracy? And you make a distinction between, and you say that the, you know, the data, you can't take from this huge data set and the, the, the trends that you've identified, simply the conclusion that younger people are giving up on democracy, because it doesn't essentially tell you about democratic values. It tells you about how people think democracies are, the phrase you use is performing. But I was wondering if there's a kind of middle ground here is there a possibility that for for younger people, though they haven't given up on democracy, that they still, and there is you know, other 
polling evidence that suggests still hold what you might call quite strong attachment to certain democratic and liberal values. It's not just that they're disillusioned with what the democracies are giving them in a performance sense, but there's a gap that's opening up now between a younger person's understanding of what democracy means, what those values actually mean, and the kinds of institutions that they are confronted with, conventional, representative, party-based, take-it-in-turns, pluralistic democracy, and that that's where the gap is. The older generation are are socialised to that form of democracy, and maybe this has to do with technology and all sorts of things. But younger generations see a gap between what democracy means in principle and its institutional form. Is that a possibility here? I think so. I mean, I think that it's something that I find myself saying again and again in interviews on this topic about this report, about our work, is that, yes, indeed, we, we measure people's assessment of how democracy is performing, not people's belief in the ideal of democracy in some more abstract sense. At the same point in time, obviously, those two things are related. They are linked. If your first experience of democratic participation, of representative democracy, is negative, if it's not producing the outcomes you hope for, if you experience disappointment, then that can engender some kind of more structural disillusionment about the system as a whole going forward. Coming back to the, our last topic of conversation about you know, is there a point at which you could have a switchover, I think that one thing to be aware of is that you know, that switch over to the point where suddenly representative democratic institutions are producing very different kinds of social and political outcomes. That can happen. I think it's actually quite likely to happen. And and when that happens, I think that you could indeed see a turnaround in people's, in young people's assessments of representative, of liberal democracy and, and how it's functioning. But the other possibility, and you touch on this in the report, and you have some very interesting, and we will you know, tweet the link so people can read this for themselves, but you have some very interesting sidebars where you discuss some of the possible implications of um, this survey material, and one of which is that there is a kind of attitudinal gulf about not, you know, and a lot depends here what we mean by democracy, but not core democratic values, values, say, of equality and participation and so on, but the version that those values assume under representative systems, and particularly that idea in representative democracy, party-based democracy, that there's a kind of turn and turn about quality to it. You might lose this time, but you'll win next time. Everybody gets their go. That's a democratic idea. But there seems to be, and not in your report, but you touch on it, other forms of survey evidence that generations maybe that have grown up in the age of social media don't necessarily think of democracy like that you know there's a different experience of democracy in the age of facebook where there's a rawer more direct understanding of what it means to participate what it means to engage what it means to argue and representative democracy the sort of late 20th century version looks to that generation a bit tired and that to me is plausible i have to say as part of this I think that's plausible. But I think what I would also say is that it's very much a reaction to where you see democratic processes and the sort of processes of opinion aggregation functioning in your life experience. So if your life experience is that you have participated perhaps once or twice in an election, you've experienced some disappointment about the outcomes that democratic, representative democratic processes have produced, 
you perhaps haven't necessarily given up on the ideal of democracy. And so that will push somebody more into a conception or an understanding of democracy that perhaps is slightly different from your standard liberal democratic one that, you know, in particular, if the, the ways that you see representative democracy as failing are related to the power of or perceived power of you know, financial interests in politics or the ability of certain groups, perhaps generational groups in this case, to block policy measures that might favour younger individuals, individuals such as yourself, then that can channel more into perhaps a slightly more populist conception, right? And that's a less pluralistic conception of democracy. It's that you actually have to get rid or unblock some of these forces that are preventing democracy from doing its job by you, that is producing outcomes that, that work for you in terms of your interests and values. So I I do think that we see some evidence of that with younger groups, and that's entirely logical and plausible. I think the really interesting question then is the extent to which that will persist then in later life if representative democratic institutions start producing different outcomes. And as you say, you do see evidence of it. So in many ways, the most striking findings in your report are about the recent trend for younger voters' feeling of satisfaction with democracy to rise when populists win. And the most distinctive feature of what you say about that is it's not just what you might think of, well, it's definitely not the Corbyn effect, because first of all, he didn't win. But secondly, say in Latin, you, you have a lot of material from Latin America, with the election of left leaning populists in Latin America, there was a rise in youth satisfaction with democracy. And maybe that's to be expected. Less expected is it also seems to be the case with right populists. So for instance, Bolsonaro, you say there's evidence that uh, in Brazil, there's a turnaround in, in youth attitudes to democracy. And then perhaps the most interesting finding of all is that there's a shift with Trump. So just take us through those, because it's fascinating and it is counterintuitive that this is not a left-right thing. This is a populist mainstream thing. There's quite a lot of things to unpack there. So I think to start off with the sort of left-right discussion issue, one thing you have to understand with established centre-left parties, and this is particularly the case in countries like Italy or France, although to some extent also much of Latin America, although obviously in Latin America, centre-left parties are much more weakly institutionalised. But one thing I think that's quite important to point out is that over time, many centre-left parties have transformed from parties that represent the interests of those who are poor or excluded or indeed certainly younger generations to much more reflecting the values and economic interests of i guess primarily a sort of public sector middle class you know you see that on the policy dimension right if you look at the policies that you know party socialiste would take or the pd in italy would take regarding you preference for protecting pensions for protecting formal employment guarantees for older generations in particular in the public sector and and that debate also is relevant for understanding bolsonaro in in brazil as well where i mean if you are an individual in brazil who's younger and or is working in the informal sector then there's really no reason why you should be expected to have a great deal of sympathy for public sector employees with really low retirement ages and all kinds of you know state benefits and protections so so that doesn't necessarily surprise me entirely and it doesn't surprise me at all that in such societies you know, younger individuals have switched away from the establishment center left and shifted to parties like the five star movement in italy or in france increasingly uh, to the rassemblement national 
Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So what about the Trump case then? Because that mm. one is, I mean, it's in some ways Trump is, and you know, we've discussed this at length on Talking Politics, to what extent Trump is or isn't an outlier. But um, in some respects, Trump is an outlier, even in your data. And yet this this finding that, and we, you know, we'll, we'll know with the election just how significant it is, but certainly when he won in 2016, the generation divide in, in support. So older people voted for him, younger people didn't. Younger people didn't necessarily vote for Hillary, but they, they either didn't show up or they didn't vote for Trump. I think the key thing is that you have to separate the Republican Party from Donald Trump. I mean, of course, it's the case that, I mean, traditionally, the Republican Party has held positions that are not amenable to the interests or values of younger voters. It's obviously very socially conservative on many issues, completely uh, against the general consensus of younger generations in the United States. And also its economic positions uh, are not very favourable to the economic plight of, of younger generations either. So in a sense, you would expect that any candidate, Donald Trump or anybody else, Mitt Romney, whoever it may be, would uh, attract at the outset a much larger proportion of support from older Americans than from younger Americans. Now, the interesting thing is, I mean, if you separate out the effect of the Republican Party from the effect of Trump's populist platform. In a sense, I think they actually move in different directions. So yes, indeed. I mean, in the report, we took this data on generational, in fact, an age divide on Trump's approval rating. And you can see that the group that Trump has alienated most in his presidency is the older traditional, more Mitt Romney voting Republican. So his approval rating among Americans age 65 plus has really, really come down. And indeed, that's a factor um, that may well lose him this election. We'll see. But on the other hand, when you look at younger Americans, uh, yes, approval for Donald Trump among younger Americans was very, very low when polling on this issue started at the start of his term in 2017. But there has been this huge increase over time, such that today, among Americans aged in the 30 to 44 bracket, which is really sort of older millennials and younger generation X, um, there's actually no difference anymore from the baseline average in the United States. So, so what does that indicate to me? I mean, what it indicates to me is that there are certain themes within populist discourse that do have resonance among younger generations. And that you know, goes from his method of engagement, you know, <laughs> using Twitter and you know, stoking up controversies to actually some of the uh, more substantial issues about how you view society in terms of being divided between a kind of closed elite and you know, the people uh, and so on and so forth. And is there any evidence as to what role education divides play in this? Because the generational gap was absolutely stark both for Brexit and Trump in 2016 but so was the educational gap and these two things may well be closely correlated because 
younger voters are much, much more likely to have been to university or college than their parents or grandparents. And with their grandparents, it was very, very rare to have, have a higher education. Now, in the United States, in Britain, in many places in Europe, it's a kind of 50-50 society. And it, so if you are part of the young university-educated group, you both have possibly a, a, a set of values that might push against certain kinds of political platforms, including populist ones. But you also have a pretty bleak experience, certainly recently since 2008, of what your education and your debt has done to your life prospects. And there may be grounds for alienation there. So do you have any sense of whether this more recent disillusionment has anything to do with a generation of alienated, university-educated young people? Yes, I mean, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, which is that, and this is actually something we've seen in survey research for some time, that the effect of higher education upon political values and indeed social values has been diminishing over time. And I think that you've hit the reason there for why that's the case, right? So when it's the case that you know, people going into higher education are then afterwards able to come out and get amazing jobs in tech or finance or the public sector or whatever it may be, uh, but to get professional jobs and move on and move up in life, then those sort of cosmopolitan liberal values tend to persist. The interesting question, of course, is what happens to those individuals who have gone through higher education, but then their post-university experience is one of debt, economic frustration, and most critically of all, of actually not being able to get that rather limited number of available, high-quality, decent-paying jobs. And I think it's really in that cohort that you see the trend towards a more kind of frustrated, uh, populist approach to politics. But you also find, don't you, that um, in those countries, so Latin America is one case study here, where you, you get populists in power. And again, we'll see with Trump, if he wins, it would be a test. If he doesn't, we won't get that test. Populists in power for more than one electoral cycle. So there's the possibility then of disillusionment with the actual performance of populists in government setting in. And at that point, then young people's rising satisfaction with democracy goes into reverse again. So there's that kind of double effect that... There seems to be something new, some new form of engagement. But over time, that too seems to fade in the face of these profound performance issues that democratic politicians are finding it very, very hard, just fundamentally hard in, in unequal societies, particularly around wealth inequality, to meet the needs and interests of the generation of people aged under 40. I mean, it's just, you know, there's hard facts that kind of reassert themselves in the face of sort of a populist upswing in enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, you have a depressing sequence that seems to play itself out over and over again, which is that you have a democratic system that is not functioning in important ways and leading to an increasing buildup of frustration among excluded groups in society. Then you have a populist breakthrough. You have a wave of euphoria uh, when that happens. And then two terms down the line into the third term, uh, populist administrations, either unable to deliver on many of their promises, have provoked political and economic crises of various kinds, or indeed have themselves become mired in you know, corruptions, uh, scandals around uh, corruption and graft, and so on and so forth. And so and at that point, you really have an even deeper crisis. So, But I think the really interesting question is about how do you prevent societies that are moving along that trajectory, right? Where do you find the exit from that trajectory? Because most countries that have, hopefully most countries that have been moving on this trajectory have actually managed to take an exit off that highway. 
I really think you know, this comes down to the question of actually how democracy itself is performing, right? I mean, I think that one of the merits of democracy is that typically, if it's functioning, the system does find a way of addressing frustrations before they become explosive, before you have this explosive populist breakthrough. I mean, even if you think about, if you think try and think more optimistically about the case of British democracy, you could argue that, well, for one thing, one of the positives that came out from the Brexit referendum, at least, is that for the first time in a generation, people started talking seriously about the frustrations of left behind you know, working class communities in regions of the country and in particular in the north. And you know, if one of the positives that comes out of the 2017 Corbyn youthquake, even if he didn't win the election, if one of the positives is that politicians start saying, well, hang around, you know, there's a lot of youth frustration out there. You know, we need to start taking policies to address the concerns of youth, to provide more affordable housing, to deal with issues of student debt. If that is the outcome, then democracy is still working and you can avoid that dangerous pathway towards a kind of um, populist breakthrough. So to finish, there are two very huge kind of clouds on that horizon one of which is covid because so we we've, we've now we're now towards the end of a year in which at least potentially generational inequalities in how government has organized societies will become more acute you know the rhetoric on this comes and goes over the past few months but there's at least a possibility that younger generations will perceive that their interests have been sacrificed for the sake of older generations partly just because of again the brute facts about how the pandemic affects health at different stages of life and that the economic consequences of the pandemic leaving aside the health consequences are going to hit really hard on younger people and then the second issue is climate change because you don't mention it in your report, but there's a lot of survey data that says the issue on which there is the biggest just attitudinal divide between the over 65s, say, and the under 30s is the urgency of climate change. So COVID and climate change at least have the potential, whatever off ramps there are from this cycle that you described, to really, really make it more complicated and more difficult, I think. We'll have to see. I mean, you know, I try to. That's be an my optimist. gloomy side. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I always try to be an optimist, and, and people are surprised when I say that. They read my reports and they think, "Oh goodness, this is all very negative." And actually, no, I, I, I think of myself as inherently, deliberately, to try and maintain an optimistic outlook on life. And I would say that, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, in regards to the COVID pandemic. We'll have to see. I mean, it could well be that one of the effects of the COVID pandemic, and in particular how we manage restarting our economies, is that it does lead to a situation where older generations have to step back. I mean, literally set step back and self-isolate because of the risks, uh, the acute risks that uh, the novel coronavirus has for older individuals. And that indeed it is younger generations who will be pushing forward the economy, who will be returning to work earlier, who will be taking more responsibility in companies or in the public sector. So we'll have to see. I mean, perhaps this is part of the process by which that generational handover in power and responsibility is is going to begin. On the issue of climate change, yes, I mean, I, I do believe that that's obviously it's a key issue for younger generations for an obvious reason. And you know, the lack of climate change action is a source of frustration among younger generations. But again, I mean, if if democracies are able to take more effective action. And if we do see this moment 
where younger generations switch from being in the political minority to being in the political majority. You may well see a point at which action moves forward and moves forward quickly. We will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore and include in our show notes how you can read Roberto's report. It really is fascinating. There are lots of little asides in there that will change how you view politics in different parts of the world. As we mentioned, we discussed the original report with Roberto and we'll make available the link to that podcast too. Our next episode is going to be discussing what did actually happen when young people and old people and everyone in between got to pick the next president of the United States. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.